This is is Collected Thoughts with Keyshawn Harper. If I haven't said it before, let me say it one more time. I love superhero movies. Or any movie in general with good guys versus bad guys. Since the beginning of storytelling, one of the most common subjects written about is the ultimate battle of good and evil. Don't you just love seeing the underdog hero conquer trial after trial and ultimately coming out on top and defeating the villain? Writers go completely out of their way to show us the wretched behavior of the antagonist and to show us how vile they can be. If you look at early villains, right, especially those in comic books, the main goal of the bad guy was always to steal a bunch of money or take over the world or even end it. The point was to show that this person was evil and you should despise them. Over time, though, that character began to be outdated and no longer compelling for writers to write about. It became flat. People began to see through, wait, why are they trying to destroy the world? Aren't they in the world? No, they needed something a bit more relatable or at least having some sort of semblance of rationale, albeit a skewed one. One of the most recent cases being the Joker movie that came out in 2019. It showed that society took part of his creation. Society made the monster. Although these characters seem more reliable, at the end of the day though, most of us can see the line that was crossed by the villain. And no matter what that villain does or the justifications of it, we condemn that behavior. Life, if anything, is about the choices we make. From the time we walk and talk, We make little decisions every day that impact our lives. Those decisions, however, grow just as we do. And one day, the decisions you make not only impact your life, but the lives of others as well. We identify with the heroes in the stories because we imagine ourselves making those heroic decisions and doing the right thing. But in a world with over 8 billion people in it, we have to face the reality that we're not the hero in every story. In fact, I'm willing to bet that we've all been in a situation or two that if there was an audience watching on the big screen, the villain of the story would be you. It's a thought that we hate to reflect on, but we need to be honest about. Although we haven't done any super villain deeds, we've all wronged people in the past, myself included. Maybe you lied to your parents, to a friend, or to a lover. Maybe you were extremely cruel to a person who, at the time, you believed deserved it, but now that you think about it, you may have went too far. Whether it's our actions or our words, there have been sins committed by us all that, when we look back on it, we don't necessarily feel as though it reflects on us now. It doesn't show who we are now. And the truth of the matter is that for many of us, this hurts. Most people like to pride themselves on being model citizens and strive to be good examples for all those around them. But fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, a lot of our actions aren't presented on the big screen. A lot of times, a person's worst behavior happens in the midst of ambiguity without any sort of witness. Some people have secrets that they alone would take to the grave. But what happens What happens when we are outed? What happens when a loved one, your community, or the world has witnessed your transgressions? 
is it possible to recover? As social media begins to grow, so does the archives of the horrendous things we've done or said on it. Something someone says now can be captured or shown to the world for years to come. We often hear the term, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. But what is the proper time when it comes to non-criminal acts? If someone does something or says something wrong, how long must they wear the scarlet letter on their chest? Is it a matter of time or is it a matter of action? And the same can go honestly with crime. In other words, what I'm asking is, when exactly is someone redeemed? For many, the idea of this question itself holds a deep relationship with religion. If you Google the definition of the word redemption, the example sentence reads, God plans for the redemption of his world. In the Christian religion, it is said that we as humans are flawed. We are doomed to do bad things, and these things are known as sins. And because it's in our nature to be sinful, we alone can't qualify to go to heaven. However, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be redeemed through him. In short, redemption is the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. And although this method of redemption isn't necessarily accepted universally, I do think it presents some interesting ideas. No matter who you are, you have almost surely done something in your life that you aren't proud of. Which in itself is a good thing because you are self-aware enough to know that what you did was wrong and now you've grown enough to want to change. But for those of us who aren't trying to necessarily redeem themselves in the eyes of a God, how can someone achieve redemption? Another way to look at this issue is in terms of debt. When we do something egregious, we are in a way taking away from someone. It can be their safety, their confidence in people, and ultimately their innocence. And whatever the case may be, in a way you are losing something yourself. You lose a bit of your inner hero. So for many, redeeming yourself means to pay back that debt and realign yourself to the person you know you can be. And while we're thinking of this, I think it's important for us to address the elephant in the room. What role does the person you've wronged play into all of this? Is forgiveness a requirement to redemption? At first glance, our knee-jerk reaction would be, of course. It only makes sense to make peace with the person you've wronged before you can really move on and grow. While in theory this sounds amazing, I'm not sure if it's super feasible in practice. Whether or not someone forgives you depends on several factors. One, how bad did you mess up? Two, how close were you to the person? And three, what kind of damage was done overall? Studies in fact show that perhaps the biggest factor is indeed the severity of the transgression. You are more likely to be forgiven for eating a roommate's food, let's say, rather than killing their cat. And if we're being honest, some people aren't really good at forgiving. And sometimes maybe that's okay. So rather, in the trek of redemption, although forgiveness is ideal and definitely should be the first thing you try to get, it's something that you, at the end of the day, have no control over. You can apologize all you want, and you can try to do all you can, but at the end of the day, the gift of forgiveness belongs to that other person, and they have to give it to you. I just wanted to make that very clear before we move on. 
Now, I believe this topic of redemption is important and interesting because not only do we all have our own journeys of redemption, we love hearing stories about it. We read books, we watch movies and TV shows, all having these stories about people changing. At its core, these stories fuel our beliefs that it's never too late to change. We may have done some bad things. We may have even been a bad person. But as long as the story continues on, there's still a chance to make things right. One of the most famous fictional stories about this is the journey of Anakin Skywalker, a.k.a. Darth Vader. I'm going to nerd out on you for a little bit, but I'm sure many of you already know the story. And if you don't, then quick spoiler alert. But when we first meet Anakin, he is a child slave, essentially. I think this was done on purpose for sure. The idea of someone being a slave is the ultimate rags to riches thing. But more importantly, him being a child. I think this was done because children are the symbol of innocence. And although his life was rough, he still managed to smile and find joy in pod racing. Now, Anakin was a bit too old to be considered a Jedi apprentice. But despite this, he was accepted into the Order and began training under Obi-Wan Kenobi. Not very long, Anakin was deemed the Chosen One. People believed that he was destined to put a stop to the dark side and bring peace to the galaxy. This belief was only strengthened over the years as he began to grow in his strength and his promise. His fighting and piloting skills were advanced, and there were plenty of stories about him saving the day already at such a young age. But as with every story of redemption, there must be a fall. As the story continues, we see Anakin make decision after decision that causes us to question his judgment. At first, it appears to be simply him being a rash and eager Padawan, learning how to control that eagerness. Doing dangerous moves during fights, or often rushing headfirst into a fight without even thinking about it. These things didn't make us see him as a bad person, more so just reckless. But I remember the moment where that recklessness began to shift for me. It was a moment that really made me pause. One day, Anakin's mother, who he had to leave behind during his pursuit of training, was tortured and bound by a group of raiders. Anakin manages to cut her out of her bondage, and she tells him how much she loves him and how proud she is of him right before dying in his arms. From there, Anakin had this look in his eyes that to me was a bit different than your average action movie revenge look. In fact, I think the movie makes some sort of effort to imply how much hatred was indeed in his heart as he proceeded to kill all the sand people who lived where his mom was kept. After this, you begin to see more and more of these glimpses of something. Until eventually, Anakin decides to join the dark side in the hopes of obtaining power to protect his wife. Throughout the movie, you could see that he had nightmares. He had visions of his wife dying. And he was told by someone that he could prevent that if he had enough power. So in quest for that power, Anakin turns his back on his friends. He turns his back on his comrades. And he assists in the genocide of all Jedi. He even goes as far as to kill children in training, just as they were looking to him to help. Eventually, Anakin is confronted by his old teacher, Obi-Wan, 
and after a dramatic fight, he was left for dead. At that moment, he was a literal shell of himself. He lost several limbs in the fight, and his body began to be engulfed in flames. Just when it was near the end, he was salvaged by the man who led him to this path, Palpatine or Darth Sidious. Darth Sidious recreated Anakin. He used prosthetic limbs and kept him alive on a breathing machine. Basically, just life support. In one day, he lost his wife, he lost his friends, and he lost his innocence. He was no longer Anakin Skywalker. He was no longer the hope. He was no longer the hero. He was now Darth Vader. Flash forward or backwards, depending on, you know what I mean, it's a weird sequence. But in the later movies or the original movies, Vader was the ultimate force of evil. He was the boogeyman. People around the world watched him in movies and hated his guts. For three films, he chased around his son Luke Skywalker and his friends as they tried to get rid of his tyranny. He did everything in his power to preserve the grip he had on the galaxy. But just when the audience thought all hope was lost and lost all sorts of respect for him, he does something shocking. He attacks Palpatine and saves his son, thereby turning his back on the dark side. But this came at a cost. He took massive amount of damage during this process. And as Luke comforts his father in his last moments of life, we are forced to reflect on all of his deeds. The man who has been seen as an absolute terror this whole time does something great in an act of heroism and self-sacrifice. He, in the end, does indeed do what he was supposed to do. He saves the day. He is the chosen one. But does that action override the enormous amount of evil he did along the way? If you look into Star Wars lore beyond the movies, there are a few stories in comic books and novels that imply that Darth Vader leads a very violent life of cruelty. But in the end, he does indeed turn his back against the dark side. He does fight for his son. But was it enough? Does one good deed outweigh the lifetime of bad ones? I feel that by the end of the movie, I think you're supposed to believe so. But it's definitely up for debate. As an audience, we love redemption stories. They are complex, yet in many cases, they make you feel good in the end. Everything is just wrapped up nicely with a bow on top. But how does that translate into the real world? Yes, we as a society claim to love redemption stories. But do our actions imply the same? And I think a good place to look at this, a good place to try to find answers, is none other than our criminal justice system. Roughly 600,000 people are released from prison every year. Some after serving their full time, others getting on a good behavior, and sadly some being released after being found innocent. No matter what the case is, although these people are free from their physical prison, there are still so many walls around them. When we're observing the effectiveness of our system, one thing we like to look at is something called the offender recidivism rate. What this is is simply a fancy term meaning that we track how often a previous offender goes back to jail. 
This of course is important because it allows us to see if our system is able to produce the results that are intended. Let me backtrack a bit. As we mentioned before, when someone wrongs you, they are in a way in your debt. But when we are talking about transgressions that are a bit more big of a deal, these actions graduate towards the criminal category. Societies have plenty of different approaches on how to deal with these wrongs. In some cases, you are forced to just pay restitution, which means you pay the person by either giving back what you stole or paying them in some monetary way that's equivalent to what you did. In even more extreme cases, some societies practice something we know as the eye for an eye rule of law, which I'm sure, as you can tell by the name, is a bit extreme and problematic within itself. But nowadays, when we look at regular everyday crimes that aren't too egregious, we take the approach of a glorified adult timeout. When dealing with a child who has done something wrong, the timeout is supposed to be a form of isolation that a child has to go through in order to repent for what they did. In theory, when the timeout happens, the child is put away from things that they love to do in hopes of them sitting out and thinking about what wrong they have done. In a perfect world, the child would acknowledge that behavior as being bad and something that they should not do or repeat in the future. Therefore, the problem is solved. Now, as you get older, these timeouts begin to be longer and longer. Groundings become something that lasts between a few minutes or maybe a few weeks, depending on the action. But when you reach that glorious age of 18, where you're considered an adult, these timeouts grow exponentially from months or weeks to literal years. Though a lot more tougher than regular timeouts, the thought process remains somewhat the same, with the added benefit of keeping the person who committed the crime away from society, thereby eliminating the problem for some time. Of course, what I'm describing is called prison. This is where the idea of recidivism becomes super important. If the intended goal of the punishment is to have a person learn from their mistakes and never do it again, then we should be able to prove that prison is enough to keep people from committing other crimes in the future, thereby saying that that time out did its job and had the person turn their lives around. But when we look at the data, the numbers show that that necessarily isn't the case. In 2005, the U.S. Department of Justice followed a sample size of 412,000 prisoners over 30 states after release. This was about 77% of all prisoners released that year. Of this group, 45% of them were arrested again within the first year. 68% were arrested within three years. And then a whopping 83% of the prisoners released in 2005 were rearrested within nine years after release. This is a perfect example of how horrible our recidivism rate is. And of course, one may argue that nine years is a long time of being clean. But understand that we're not talking about speeding tickets here. We're talking about full-fledged, put-your-hands-behind-your-back arrests. If this is the case, then clearly the objective of prison isn't working. Now, let's just, for the sake of argument, put all those numbers aside. And let's say that despite the inherent flaws of the system, for some percentage of people, the system in place is enough to cure them of their wicked ways and lead them to a law-abiding life after their release. Now let's say that this person 
has paid their debt to society, perhaps depending on the situation, gotten forgiveness from their victim, and now they're ready to embark on a journey to fulfill the final part of redemption. With all this behind them, they are now ready to ensure that the future good they will do will outlast the bad of whatever they did in the past. In theory, the person should be able to do this. They should be able to get a job and move on. It can be argued that plenty of people come out of prison more marketable than before. After all, there are education opportunities and trainings available to them. But if this is the case, why do so many people find it incredibly difficult to gain employment after release? The thought here partially lies within us. Previously convicted individuals often find themselves in an uphill battle when it comes to the job market, and this is because of one thing, perception. In essence, no one wants to hire a convict. People love the idea of someone being new and a better person, yet when it comes to actually hiring someone with a past, it's far safer to err on the side of caution. To this day, there are still laws in place that protect companies' rights to refuse employment of a person based on their criminal record. But other issues such as lack of education and job experience is definitely enough to give a business a blanketed reason to not hire these people. As a result of this, a lot of former prisoners are forced to take extremely low-paying jobs or remain unemployed. This, of course, skyrockets their likelihood of committing a crime. Thus, the cycle continues. Like I said, we love movies, we love TV shows about a person doing everything they can to turn their lives around. But I truly believe that that infatuation only lies in fiction. In the stories we already know the endings to. We don't have to put actual trust on the line. And I get it, it's fair to keep your guard up. But we at least have to provide people with some sort of legitimate chance at redemption. Listen, I'm not saying that there aren't groups of people who should have to work a hell of a lot to be reintegrated back into society. Sexual offenders should definitely be placed under severe restrictions and murderers may not be able to come back at all depending on the circumstances. But if our society puts more barriers in front of the people who've already paid their price, what does that say about our belief in redemption? I'm not gonna lie and tell you that I have the answers, I don't. In fact, my stance on this whole thing has evolved over the years. In the past, I have been a heavy proponent in the idea that people who commit crimes were indeed criminals. However, oddly enough, the more people I took to jail back in my time as an officer, the less and less I thought this was the case. I remember having conversations with people who, as we drove downtown, I remember the stories they told, how some people had been to jail over and over again and it wasn't because they simply wanted to be bad but it was because they had no other options in their minds a lot of them would tell me that while they were serving their time in jail all they can think of is how much better their life would be when they got out they thought about how they would get a stable job how they would provide for themselves in legal ways but soon after they got out the reality hits that some employers just don't like the idea of having someone with a record on their team. People treat them differently and assume that they're rotten to the core, even to the people who they have known all their lives. Simply the aura of the word convict carries more weight than their past reputation, carries more weight than the years before they went to jail. 
Which leads us to the idea or the conversation about redemption in the public eye. It's bad enough to have to rebuild your legacy for the people you know in your immediate circle. But what if you really mess up and it goes viral? We hinted at it earlier today that social media and the internet makes our words and our actions chiseled in time. Sure, you can try to delete something, but is it really ever really deleted? Even when you think it's gone, it's still some sliver of it there, somewhere hiding. When we're talking about redemption on a giant scale, I think the best type of people to observe are those who are famous. I mean, if we're going to be honest, famous people do do a lot of dumb things. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. I mean, for one, all eyes are always on them, so they're bound to slip up. Or the power that fame gives you, it can take over. It can just make you a horrible person. Whatever the reason, it seems like every day we see someone famous doing something dumb. In fact, it happens so often, you can say that there's a bit of a formula that has emerged that gives us a blueprint of what to do when we do something idiotic. All right, first, you immediately apologize to the group or to the person you've wronged. Now, this can be different forms. You could do an exclusive interview or some YouTube video with a catchy title. Whatever it is, get that message out there. Afterwards, the person has to donate a good amount of money to a cause or to something that relates to what they did or said. For example, if you say something racist, you give money to some HBCU. Anyways, once you do that, you're on to the final step, the waiting game. This game is interesting because honestly, it's hard to tell who wins or who doesn't. We see a variety of celebrities get canceled. Some of them come back. But this goes back to the question, what decides when someone is redeemable or not? I feel like we've gone down a massive rabbit hole of thought about all of this. And I think it's only fair, it's only honest, and I'm all about being transparent. But I have to talk about the person that caused all this for me. The reason why you're here listening right now. The one person whose ability to be beloved by many despite their horrendous behavior has baffled me for years. I'm talking about the one, the only, R&B singer Chris Brown. I would put in some of his music right now, but I don't want that copyright stuff, so I'm not going to. Look him up, but I'm sure you know of him. For those of you who don't know him, though, Christopher Maurice Brown is an incredibly popular singer who won a plethora of awards over his nine studio albums. Chris reached fame pretty early in his career. His debut album, Run It, was released in 2005 and made him the first male since 1997 to have a debut single top the Billboard 100 charts. Mind you, he was only 16 at the time. Over the next few years, Chris Brown would skyrocket into the hearts of young women all over the world. The combination of his vocals and iconic dance moves led many to claim that he could be the next Michael Jackson. But in 2009, things took a turn for the worst. At the time, Chris Brown was dating another famous singer named Rihanna. Twas the night before the Grammys, and the two were driving in a Lambo. Reports say that Rihanna confronted Chris about being unfaithful, and then a dispute began. One thing led to another, and things turned violent. According to the police report, Rihanna was struck in the face several times, placed in a headlock, and even bitten on the arm. Chris said that the bite came for her trying to grab his phone from his pocket. Whatever happened, the police were called and Chris Brown was arrested. Online, there were a lot of interviews about this, with Chris speaking about that night. And although he admitted that he felt like a monster, 
You can also get the vibe that he felt as if his actions were warranted by Rihanna's behavior. For a while, it appeared as if Chris Brown's career was over. He was never going to recover from this. This long period of career ambiguity lasted only a year. In 2010, Brown released a collaborative album with another artist that featured songs that once again went number one. And look, I get it. If this is how the story ended, then I suppose I wouldn't be so perplexed. As we mentioned before, people do make mistakes, they pay for those mistakes, and learn from those mistakes, and hopefully they begin to move on and lead better lives. And if this really was the case, I would have no qualms looking over it. But it wasn't. Since then, Chris Brown has had so many more accusations and charges filed against him dealing with this same type of behavior. Let's go from top to bottom. <sighs> 2011, he smashed a window and stormed off the set of Robin Roberts' interview when he was asked about his battery charge. 2012, he stole a woman's phone after she took a picture of him. 2013, he shoved the woman to the ground at the nightclub, leaving torn ligaments in her right knee. 2015, he had a third-degree assault report filed on him after a woman said he forcibly ejected her from the bus after she refused to give up her cell phone. 2016, Brown avoided charges after a woman accused him of punching her in the face and taking her phone from the Las Vegas nightclub. I'm sensing a pattern about phones. 2016, his female tour manager claimed that he threatened her with a brutal physical attack. 2018, he was detained by LAPD following a standoff in his home. A woman accused the singer of threatening her with a gun after showing up at his house. 2019, the craziest one for last. Chris Brown and two accomplices were taken into custody in Paris after a woman filed a report of aggravated rape. Aggravated rape! <sighs> the point of this was not to just highlight the flaws of one man, but it is to put in question how we as a society can overlook the behaviors of some while saying that others can never change. What is redemption and how do we redeem ourselves? We start out trying to figure out if there were some concrete answers to these questions. But the truth of the matter is, it depends. There is no actual formula on how we can redeem ourselves because the criteria is different for everyone. A person can wrong someone and never be forgiven but leads the rest of their lives to do good. Or a person can never truly learn from what they did, yet still be praised by millions. So I guess all of this is to say that redemption is a personal journey. Part of being human means that you will do things that you're incredibly proud of, but it also means that there'll be days you wish you could wipe away. There'll be actions you wish you can wipe away. But the sad thing is, you can't. The people you heard and the harsh words you may have said will forever be on your resume just as those great things are. But the question is, once again, and will always be until you die, does the good you achieve outweigh the bad? Thank you all for listening, and until next time, take it easy. Hey, once again, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please do us a favor and subscribe. And after that, give us a five-star review. Also, while you're at it, like the Collected Thoughts Facebook fan page. Or if you're more of an Instagram person, follow me, Keyshawn Harper, on Instagram. Thank you guys all for the love. And until next episode, take it easy.